You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Well, hello, all you wiretappers out there. I've got a special solo show again today for you. I did one recently, Johnny Francovilla. This is another Kansas City story that it happened right after I left the intelligence unit and got promoted to sergeant. But it started back in the 1970s. In the 1970s, there was a shoplifter named William Kirkpatrick. We often followed him around trying to figure out where he was boosting and who he was boosting for. We knew he was connected to the mob. He was really a well-known booster or shoplifters. You know, booster is the colloquial form for shoplifter. I remember one time we got some information from a small town in Illinois where he'd been caught by a random patrol car while he was trying to steal a car. Now, Kirkpatrick He'd probably steal anything. It was a really unusual situation. It, it was confusing to us at the time. He was on foot. It was late at night, and they never figured out what he was driving to get there. Find out later, his fall partner, Ray Bowman, was probably dropped him off. When they caught him, he had a pistol and a shoulder holster, and he was carrying a mask in his pocket and dressed all in black. And at the time, we never figured out what he was doing. Now, what Billy Kirkpatrick was well-known for was stealing record albums and fencing them with a Kansas City mob member named Tiger Cartarella, Anthony Tiger Cartarella. Tiger had a really the most well-known record album store in Kansas City. It was called Tiger's Records. Everybody in Kansas City bought record albums from Tiger because they were the cheapest. I remember buying one, a double album of B.B. King, and it had a, I think it was like Kresge's or TGNY or Tower Records or some other department store, I believe, that sold records on it, but it was about three-quarters of the sticker price. And for that reason, it was the most popular record store in Kansas City, everybody bought them there. You know, we all kind of knew what was going on. I particularly knew what was going on. Of course, I was in there, you know, seeing what what the story was. He had all the latest releases, and they were always discounted, as I said, about 75% of the sticker price. You know, one time an ATF agent, Dave Nyman and myself, driving around, and, and we noticed that Kirkpatrick's car, which was a large 1975 Ford Thunderbird, it was brown with, I believe, a black vinyl top or a darker brown vinyl top. And back in the 70s, those Thunderbirds were huge, big cars. They were like the same size of a Lincoln. They made them to look like a Lincoln Mark is what they made them to look like. Sparked at a Ford dealership, and we had heard he had special air shocks underneath this car, so when he filled his trunk with record albums, the car would not sink down and cause the uh, state troopers or the police to, you know, pull him over and say, hey, what are you hauling in your trunk? So we stopped, went in and approached the service manager and asked for his help. He said, well, go ahead, guys. Do whatever you got to do. And he gave us the keys. We went out and found that he had these hair shocks down underneath and opened the trunk, and it was filled to the brim with record album. And that's a lot of record albums, and that car was sitting just flat as heck. He must not have felt like he could get it on to where he wanted to unload the record albums before he stopped there to the car dealership. Over the next two years, our friend Billy Kirkpatrick will take on a partner, and he'll graduate from boosting trips to a more dangerous and yet more lucrative criminal activity bank robbery. Now, during these years when he was boosting, he met another record booster who was really well-known himself named Ray Bowman. Both men sold record albums to 
Tiger Cartarella to Tigers. You know, a little aside about Tigers Records, that was the place that you bought your concert tickets back then. If you're old enough, you remember you didn't buy concert tickets from Ticketmaster online. You went to your local record store and bought them, and there'd be huge long lines at record stores for the popular concerts that were coming up, and and it was all cash money. Tiger had a lot of cash money running through that thing. Plus, he sold more record albums out of that store than all the other record stores put together, more than likely. What Tiger would do, he had a whole stable of boosters, and he would give them list of record albums that he wanted. And other things that he wanted to get were smaller but high-dollar items that were easy to boost, like tennis rackets, uh, watches, leather coats, and any other things like that that he seemed to have a market for. Now, Tiger actually worked under another little more senior mobster. He didn't really have a title. They were probably peers, but Willie the Rat Camisano had his daughter working in there, Kathy Nigro, and she was only there to monitor Tiger's activities because I think nobody really trusted Tiger. They would have been contemporaries, but Willie Camisano had a crew and some relatives that all worked under him, so he had a little more power. Tiger had this whole stable of boosters working for him, but Willie the Rat had like a real deal crew that paid attention to him, and he was like their capo or their boss. We're not broken down quite as rigidly as, say, back in New York or in uh, Chicago, the eastern cities particularly, but Willie was as close as we had to a capo or a captain with a crew and probably had kind of an underboss his son Willie Jr. and then there was a bunch of professional thieves that that worked under them. Willie would set up the scores and and they'd go out and do them and and he may have gotten a piece of the action that these boosters brought into Tigers. A little aside about Tiger, eventually the feds will make a case on him in the later 70s and before he really does any time He goes in, he comes back out, he starts abusing cocaine and running all the late night joints. He gets involved in a counterfeit money scheme. There's a large sum of that cash money that was taken in from concert ticket sales disappears. The guy that managed that in Kansas City had to go to Anthony Savella. I saw him meeting Anthony Savella one night. We found out later that he was complaining that, like, I want to say $20,000, $25,000 had disappeared from the ticket receipts, and nobody seems to know where they were. And this guy is the one that was out the money. He had to make good to the ticket brokers that he got in front, and And then he went around and took them to the different record stores, and he got a piece of that action after they sold them. Before that whole deal was straightened out about the—and he was pulling the concert tickets out of Tiger's Records, which was not a good thing for the record store business, for sure. But before that can be straightened out, a truck driver over in East Bottoms finds a body in a trucking line parking lot, and it's Tiger Cartarella, and his pockets were slid open as a sign he'd been stealing. I always think it was because he got a little crazy, he got involved in the— this counterfeit money thing, and I understood that he was not sharing any of that, and he also stole that money out of the concert ticket sales uh, and cost him the ticket sales franchise. The young girls, the cocaine, the whole nine yards, he was just out of control. He had a, a partner named uh, Felix Farina that he had once got caught doing a murder with. They're trying to do a murder, and, and they beat the case. It was a, ended up being an assault, and they beat the case. But he and Felix Farina were, had been partners for a long time. And, and another word going around was that Tiger and Felix Farina thought maybe they could move in and, and knock out Camisano and one of the younger Savellas that was coming up and Tuffy DeLuna, they were all going to jail, Tuffy and Corky and Nick. 
Nick had died. Taffy and Corky were going to jail for the skimming, and they thought maybe they could take over, and, and somebody knocked both of them off because Felix was found dead about six months after Tiger was found dead. But back to the boosters. Every booster in the city wanted to work with Ray Bowman because he was well-known as being slick, closed-mouthed, had really good practices and procedures. He scoped out the record stores. He looked for the lazy and indifferent clerks before he boosted. He was very careful and had always been real successful. He got caught in a burglary when he was really young, but he had ne- really not had come to law enforcement's attention very much. He and Kirkpatrick knew each other, and they kind of liked each other, and they started working together. During this is when Bowman was a little bit younger. He lived a pretty fast lifestyle. They say he spent a lot of money on cocaine for club girls, rented limos. He had a Corvette. I remember he had a Corvette. He dressed in expensive clothes. And if he was out of town, out of sight of local law enforcement, informants would say that he splurged for $1,000 dinners for friends and things like that. A girlfriend was interviewed later on from that time and said he was really anti-government and kind of a survivalist. He had all kinds of guns and ammo that he kept in a special lot room in his house. Billy Kirkpatrick, his partner, was kind of a good old boy. He just grew up around the mob over Northeast and other professional criminals. Always drove like this T-Bird, drove kind of a nice car, but never really lived beyond his means or seemed like to, uh, you know, I don't remember he even did many drugs. He did some, as anybody might do, but he was not a real flamboyant guy. Bowman was pretty flamboyant when he was out of town. But back in town, he was usually pretty quiet, except for that Corvette. Because those kinds of cars, they draw attention, man. Especially when you like really don't have any means of income. These two guys, they made boosting outfits. Have you ever seen a boosting coat or booster's coat? They have these really long coats with boost, what we call a booster sleeve, or the liner will actually be made into a big pocket. So they could just fill that whole long coat up with record albums, which, you know, they, they do much better in the winter than they do in the summer. They get a little noticeable in the summer. And they had oversized pants and shirts with special pockets inside. They could steal fewer in one go at in t- inside of a uh, record store in the summer than they could in the winter. They were both popped one time together in Springfield, Missouri, in a Kmart. Which that was see that was their mo. They'd go all around the Midwest, uh, like a day's trip out of Kansas City, and and hit like Springfield, and maybe go down to Fayetteville and Little Rock, and then come back or go up north, go to Topeka, you know, maybe uh, Lincoln and Omaha, Nebraska, over to Des Moines and then back down, or maybe go to Des Moines to Minneapolis and, and hit the suburban stores. If you remember, all the suburban shopping centers particularly had a small record store, and they always have like a, some teenagers some just worked there because they liked the music and didn't want any confrontations with anybody and liked to talk to people about music and do things like that. So those guys were like putty in the hands of professional thieves like this. And when they worked together, many times they'd use the block and tackle method. If uh, some clerk did see one of them taking something and started to follow him out while the other one would go grab the clerk and try to interrupt him for start off engaging in conversation and worst case scenario, if the clerk was really aggressive, they'd just like push him down and, and everybody'd take off running. Well, during this time in the late 70s, Tiger Cartarella was convicted for a variety of thefts from interstate shipments and he purchased a lot of guns. ATF got onto him and he was buying guns from a couple of three different individuals that were burglarizing gun stores around in the Midwest. 
he would go into the penitentiary. And our two boys, Kirkpatrick and Bowman, moved on to bank robbery. They dropped out of the scene in Kansas City. You didn't see them around, didn't see them at Tigers anymore, and kind of the usual haunts. Uh, and what they did, they were starting a 15-year stretch. About 1982, they started a 15-year stretch of very successful bank robbers. They, I think the FBI even reports that they are the most successful bank robbers that they have ever documented. And that's over the long haul and the uh, number of scores they got away with and the, and the amount of money they got away with. They kept a low profile. They never robbed banks in and around Kansas City. They used meticulous planning, and they kept their mouths shut. You do those things, and you can get away with a lot of stuff. It's really only in bad luck. Remember, I did that interview with the Booney Hat Bandit that was robbing banks all around his hometown and used his own car, and he had a clerk. He thought he had it down. He said the clerks were instructed to never follow the bank robber out. Well, one clerk did follow him out and did pick up his license plate number, gave it to the cops who were responding, and it was his car, and they ended up chasing him down and catching him. These guys always stole cars and had what they call a cutout car. Good bank robbers will have a car that they take to the bank and then they'll have another car stashed a few blocks away and they'll run right to that stashed car or switch car, jump in it, and they may even have a second switch car that will be actually their car that they drive on off in and have it registered to legitimately somebody. The first two would be stolen cars. During this time, both these guys will get married and kind of settle down to a more normal lifestyle, except for periodic trips when they leave where they're living and go, go somewhere in another part of the United States and rob a bank and then come back. When it first got started, the FBI, they always keep track of bank robbery crews. And if they figure out the same people are doing something, they will give them a name. We had the, we had the Booney Hat Bandit. We had the plaid shirt robber. There's been a variety of different robbers. Sometimes there's one old guy called, they called the gentleman robber. And this is kind of for the FBI to refer to different strings of bank robberies, different. This is for the FBI to refer to different strings of bank robberies. They called them the Mutt and Jeff robbers at first because, and Ray Bowman was really short, like 5'6", five, 5'7", five, and Kirkpatrick was about 6'2", six, 6'3". They adopted basically the same disguise, which is one reason the FBI started figuring out this was the same crew, you know, their relative heights and the same disguise. The disguise was always long trench coats, fedora hats, gloves, and wigs. A lot of victims, they were darker, I guess. I remember Kurt Patrick was a little bit darker. He had black hair and, and was darker. And they described him as Hispanic or maybe even possibly Native American. And during all their robberies, they only shot one person. It was, was a female who resisted to go into the vault because she was afraid she'd get locked in there and she was claustrophobic. And Kurt Patrick, for some reason, shot her in the back or he wounded her. I probably intentionally maybe shot her in the butt or something to try to get her attention. And, and Ray Bowman and they were always kind of gentlemanly. They never, like, pushed anybody around or never raised their voices. They were quiet and polite, and they said this lady would report that the shorter one, which was Bowman, reassured her that in the end they would not put her in the vault. 1989, after a $400,000 robbery of a Milwaukee bank, two men who fit this description were arrested for robbing an armored car in Massachusetts. The FBI charged them with that Milwaukee robbery, and the FBI believed they had their trench coat bank robbers. Both of these men were convicted after a trial of this Milwaukee bank robbery that Bowman and Kirkpatrick did, put in jail and given a prison sentence. 
But while they were in jail, the real trench coat bank robbers robbed another bank in Lincoln, Nebraska. And then they robbed a couple more. And, of course, their lawyers jumped on that, and eventually they'll be released and exonerated. So over the next few years, they continued to rob more banks, primarily in the Midwest. One time they went clear out to Henderson, Nevada. They almost got caught out there. A clerk had tripped the alarm. And just as the cops arrived, Bowman and Kirkpatrick and their hostage disappeared inside of a housing complex. It was the streets were all laid out in a maze. They were like a rabbit warren is what I call that. And you see those over in these European cities. And inside that rabbit-worn set of streets, they let their hostages go. They had a switch car stashed there, and they jumped in the switch car and took off, and they disappeared. And that job was good for $138,000. These guys really case these banks out good because they made a lot of money. I think conservative may be up around, I don't know, $10 million. It was quite a little bit. They had one really big score that helped their total amount. It was during this time that Kurt Patrick was caught trying to steal this car in a small Illinois town late at night and wearing the pistol and the shoulder holster. He was able to post bond. He disappeared after that. So we know now what he was doing. He was stealing a car to go do a bank robbery someplace. Ray Bowman was living in Kansas City in an inexpensive rental home at that point in time. And I remember the intelligence unit was hunting high and low for Kurt Patrick after he forfeited his bail on this firearms charge up in Illinois. The feds charged him uh, federally with a firearms charge because he had that gun on him because they really didn't have much locally trying to steal a car, prowling around late at night, wearing black, having a mask. That You can't get much out of that. But a felon in possession, you can get five years out of that. And feds were always up for going after Billy Kirkpatrick. He came back to Kansas City and, and he did not go back to his usual haunts and he lived under an assumed name. He took up with an attractive young woman who was about 17 years younger. Her name was Myra Penny and she will stay with him basically the rest of his bank robbing career. She was the only person outside of Bowman that we know about that knew about the bank robbery. Bowman would have had a couple different women in his life that he lived with, and he never told them exactly what he did. He always had a, a secret stash, a room that he kept locked in his house that his girlfriend was ordered never to go into, and it seemed like they never did as far as I know. Myra Penny would go through all of Kirkpatrick's car and possessions, his luggage and everything when he came back from a bank robbery trip and make sure that any evidence like receipts that tied him to the area had been destroyed. They said that she would go through the receipts and make sure he hadn't been cheated on anything. Now, during this time, like by the middle 80s, they had a little bit of money stashed away, and Billy Kirkpatrick and Myra Penny moved to Minneapolis area. She left her children behind with their father and never really even communicated with them for the next several years. In 1988, Kurt Patrick was scouting a bank in Duluth, Minnesota, and he kind of fell in love with the rugged coast of Lake Superior. I guess it is beautiful up there. They decided to move up there. They had a log-style house custom-built that was about 20 miles from the Canadian border. It was really large, three-story cedar logs built by a local contractor. Myra Penny, again, took care of all the business end of Kirkpatrick's life, and she paid this builder in several separate installments with cash wrapped with rubber bands, and she carried it with a brown paper sack. The builder would later claim he just assumed that Mrs. Penny had inherited a lot of money. I think he probably had suspicions, but he didn't care. He was getting paid that cash money. 
During this time, Kirkpatrick lived under the name of Don Wilson. He even had a driver's license and a, and a whole ID laid out. This must have been, this was back in the day when you could still get a dead person's birth certificate and go get you a uh, whole false identity with Social Security card and driver's license and the whole nine yards. You really, it's really difficult to do that anymore. Go try to get somebody's death certificate. You got to jump through so many hoops. It's unbelievable. Now, Myra Penny will later say that she always called him the big guy because she didn't want to mess up and use his real name and draw suspicion from their neighbors because they lived in a really small town named Hovland, Minnesota. It only had one convenience store and one set of gas pumps. And Myra did have all the interactions with the neighbors. She claimed that she and her husband, the big guy, owned some warehouses where people paid their rentals in cash, so that's one reason they had a lot of cash. And he had to travel around and check on the properties, and that would explain his absences. And during this time, Kirkpatrick lived a kind of a reclusive life up there. He, she'd later report that he took a mail-order locksmithing course during this time. He wanted to perfect his lock-picking skills. I once had an informant that. I tell you, that guy, he went to locksmith school, and he could make a key, and he could get into a lock anywhere. The really good thieves will do that kind of a thing. Myra Penny kind of was the homemaker, and she started making quilts and had a really large garden. Even did some greenhouse gardening. That far north is such a short growing season. you got to do a lot. If you're going to have many vegetables, you got to have them in a greenhouse. Kirkpatrick was seen by neighbors building a stone path to the water's edge, but he mainly was pretty standoffish with the neighbors. He let Myra take care of all that. On the surface, they're just another kind of eccentric couple that like to live this reclusive, peaceful life right on the edge of Lake Superior. Myra will later claim that Billy Kirkpatrick became so relaxed, he even stopped carrying a gun for the first time since she had known him. You want to get along with people. When you're doing stuff like this, you need to get along with people. Well, they had some disagreements with the builder of their cedar cabin, cedar home, really, three-story home. And so he got mad, and he made a call to the IRS reporting that, you know, they built a six-figure home and paid him all in cash. And he'd already gotten his money, so he didn't care, and he'd filled out the CTRs when he'd had deposited $10,000 or more in cash. And that will come back to haunt him. In 1997, they made the big score. January 97, both men met up, drove separately to in suburban Tacoma, Washington. They checked into a local hotel, and during this time, they find out they ate out in the best restaurants. They went to a piano concert at, one, at a local college. I'm not sure what the deal is with that. That kind of came back to haunt them, too. What they did, they started staking out the Seafirst Bank in Lakeland, Washington, which is a suburb of Tacoma. For over a month, they surveilled the bank and the activities. They watched every employee that came and went, and they started figuring out these guys kept a lot of money in there because they got cash money delivered from other branch banks. They would have a armored car show up, and they figured out that armored car had picked up cash at another branch bank, brought it to this bank. They also had a lot of cash because their Fort Lewis was nearby, and these guys in the military would come in and cash their checks, and local stores would need a lot of cash because they were cashing a lot of military checks. They also had an Indian casino in the area, and they would bring tons of cash in there. So they figured out this was going to be a huge score. On February 10th, 1997, Billy Kirkpatrick used a Jeep master key he had made, and he stole a nice new Jeep Grand Cherokee. When they got to the bank, they slipped a lock on the side door and entered the lobby. They found just a few employees, and of course, both men wore trench coats, 
One of them wore a baseball hat with an FBI logo on the front of it. Both wore sunglasses, gloves, and Kirk Patrick had an earpiece, and that was attached to a police scanner listening for police calls. They went back in the vault with the employees, and there were several carts filled with cash, and they unloaded all that cash into duffel bags. There was all female employees, and I think maybe one man, one manager or something. They left the employees tied to the carts with zip ties as they exited the bank. Now, if you ever wonder how much $4.5 million weighs, it weighs about 350 pounds. Well, I tell you what, when that one hit the FBI office, they called in agents from all over the United States. They flooded into that city. They checked every motel and hotel. They found the abandoned Jeep commander. Of course, it was wiped clean. No fingerprints to robberies. The disguises prevented the cameras from helping any other than their relatives' heights, and they knew they had the trench coat robbers again. They even, uh, the local cops and the FBI agents, roadblocks on I-5 if anybody's going in and out of town. Now, you know there's many more ways around in and out of Tacoma, Washington than I-5. But they, I mean, they tried everything. The time they got all that set up, they had already boogied, headed straight south from the bank robbery to Portland, Oregon, and were in a motel. They split the money in half. I can imagine these guys going through that money like, oh, my God, just a quick count. You know, they knew they had multiple million dollars. They split the money in half and got separate rental cars and each started driving back home. Now, Ray Bowman stopped in several banks along the way and put his share in different safety deposit boxes. Billy Kirkpatrick drove straight through to Minneapolis, and he had Myra drive down from uh, Haviland, Minnesota, to Minneapolis, brought the duffel bags of money into his motel room. and. Later on, Myra Penny will be asked what happened when she first met Kirkpatrick, and she said, that, well, I asked him, well, how did we do? How'd you guys do? She said Kirkpatrick just smiled and said, well, we probably will not have to rob any more banks, and she was happy with that. They went out and celebrated with a real expensive dinner and Dom Perignon champagne. Eventually, you know, the next day or two, they returned back up to their dream home, the three-story cedar cabin along Lake Superior. Kirkpatrick just went back to work on his stone path, He did allow himself one luxury. He went out and bought a six-wheel all-terrain vehicle. Now, if you remember, I said something about the builder got mad at him and called the IRS about all this cash money. So there's a young IRS agent assigned to look at the case and figure out what the deal was with this cash money. And the first thing he did, he went to the local bank and found there was no other CTRs done by Myra Penny or anybody else that he could link to Billy Kirkpatrick or Don Wilson, I guess, was the name he was using. And when he checked Myra Penny, he couldn't find that she'd ever filed any income taxes, and she'd handled all the money. So then he knew that he had something going there. He got a grand jury subpoena for her. He went out there to interview Myra Penny and her husband, Don Wilson. They refused to talk without a lawyer, and over the next two or three days, William Kirkpatrick and Myra Penny gathered up all the locksmithing paraphernalia and any other possible incriminating evidence. Kirkpatrick had put a bunch of his cash and some other safety deposit boxes around, and he went around and emptied all them out. He took all this evidence, all his locksmithing material and notes and anything that was left over, and all the cash, and drove out to Las Vegas and put it all in a storage locker. 
It was during this time Ray Bowman happened to call up to their house. Myra Penny answered the phone and said, hey, uh, you just need to know Uncle Tom's been here. That was their code name for the cops are somehow interested. They didn't say any more, just that Uncle Tom's been there. Well, good thing at that point in time for them, because during this time, Kansas City FBI agents and ATF agents had already put a tap on Bowman's phone because they suspected him maybe of being one of the bank robbers. They didn't know who his partner was. That got on to him because he had stored a bunch of lockpicking tools and some disguises and other suspicious items like a homemade silencer in a storage locker in Kansas City. The dummy had forgotten to make a payment, and the owner had tried to get hold of him. He'd left like a phony phone number and a phony name. So the owner pried open the locker and discovered these items. He called the ATF because the silencer that was in there. Well, at first, they found some other anti-government literature, and this was not that long after the Oklahoma City bombing. And everybody was hyped up looking around for uh, survivalist types and people that anti-government types that had the wherewithal to bomb buildings and shoot people. And he looked like he might be one of them because he did have some anti-government literature. So they got onto that, and as they looked into it, then they all got hold of the FBI, and then they decided they had some other information that put it together that said, you know, he may be one of the trench coat bandits, and he's the short guy, he's the Jeff guy, or was Mutt the short one? I can't ever remember. Which one was it, folks? Mutt the tall one and Jeff the short one? I can never remember. During this time, what was it, the later 80s, the uh, IRS case had stalled out. Actually, it was the early 90s. Uh, after a few months, Kirkpatrick got nervous and flew to Las Vegas. He hadn't heard from the IRS, uh, but he just got nervous. The next shoe was about to drop. Rented a car, drove out there to Las Vegas, emptied his storage locker of between two, two and a half million dollars. He probably had at least two left over by then. Started driving back to Minnesota, a, an alert Nebraska state trooper stopped him for speeding. And it was really like seven miles over. I didn't know they'd stop you for anything less than 10 over. I have to be careful myself. But when he approached the car, approached Kirkpatrick, he just got suspicious. I don't know. Uh, sometimes you just like, you know, there's something wrong here. You don't know what it is. Of course, Kirkpatrick, he had this good ID in the name of Don Wilson, had a driver's license and the whole nine yards. And he had a story already. He said, I flew out to Las Vegas. I rented a car and I drove my niece from Vegas area to Denver for college. But again, that just didn't smell right. And this is the kind of guy that would go drive his niece to college that far away. And why did he need to drive fly clear out there and he lived back in Minnesota and now he's driving this rental car rather than round trip back to Vegas and drop off the rental car and go home. He's driving it on to Minnesota. You know, there's just a lot of little things in there that don't quite make sense. So he's looking around and searches the car. I don't know. I think the search was end up being found not any good, but there was other charges they ended up getting on Kirkpatrick after they identified him as one of the trench coat robbers. But he found four guns real quick, and he found the disguises, and he found the footlockers, which when they got in them, they found about $2 million. He got hold of Myra Penny and through some coded languages told her to go to a particular place that they had agreed on that she'd go to if he ever got arrested. But she didn't want to do that. She went right to the courthouse in Lincoln, Nebraska, where she could maybe post bond for him. And her agents arrested her for being part of the conspiracy. And they got her in and she broke down immediately and implicated, told him who Ray Bowman was. They'd already had a call between her and them, and they just knew that it was some guy named Ray, and they couldn't figure out exactly who he was. Well, now they know exactly who he is. 
They called back to Kansas City and put together a team and Ray search warrant on his house. There they found uh, more evidence that linked Ray Bowman and William Kirkpatrick together and linked them back to the Seafirst robbery. They found like the license number of the janitor to the Seafirst Bank's janitor's car. Found wigs and faint beards and mustaches and blank car keys and, and all the paraphernalia that professional thieves might have. So they start getting ready to charge him. They can only charge him with the last three robberies because of the statute of limitations. And Kirkpatrick goes ahead and cops a plea pretty quick and gets 15 years. Now, I understand he's out now and lives somewhere around here in Kansas City. I asked a guy trying to get an interview with him, but the guy said he would, but then he, he never really got around to it. And I don't figure he's going to give me an interview. He'd be kind of interesting to talk to. Myra Penny would probably be more interesting, but she's up in Minneapolis the last I could ever figure out. She got probation for money laundering. We was working at a hotel in Memphis back here about, I don't know, 15 years ago. I don't know. They'd be pretty old now older than me. I would imagine the government seized that log cabin up there since they'd purchased it with cash money. Ray Bowman refused to cooperate, never copped a plea, went to jury trial, and much to his uh, dismay, he got found guilty and he got 24 years. Now the difference in getting 15 and 24 years difference in copping a plea and going for broke. The government ended up finding most of the money that he had deposited around in the country. There's still, I don't know, maybe four or $500,000 that they didn't get back. They said in one case they found $500,000 in one safety deposit box that was rented two days after the Seafirst robbery. So they found one of those that he was dropping the money off in on the way back. They found several others. Now, what they were charged with were, besides it, Lakewood was the city, the suburban area in Tacoma, Washington area, the Seafirst. They were also charged with robbing the Hawkeye Bank and Trust in Des Moines on November 7, 1987. The Michigan National Bank in Saginaw, Michigan on May 28, 1992, and the U.S. Bank in Portland, Oregon on February 16, 1994, and the National City Bank in West Carrollton, Ohio on October the 6th, 1994. And they did two in one year in 1994. They must, one of them must not have been too good a score. So that's the story of the trench coat bank robbers. They were connected to the mob when they were boosting, but they weren't really owned by the mob, and they took off and did their own thing. Probably took off and kept quiet and did their own thing because they didn't want any of those mob guys to know they had all that money. They were immensely successful for a long time. They've gone down, go to the FBI website, and I think when you look up bank robbers, they've got a whole story about the trench coat bank robbers. I got this as an article after I give you a tribute to the New Yorker magazine. They've got an online article that, that gives a lot of these details. So that's how important of a bank robbing duo they were that the, the New Yorker magazine even got interested in their story and, and did a story on them. So. Well, as usual, I appreciate your attention, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. I thank you for listening and supporting Gangland Wire Crime Stories. If you want some more connection to the show, find my private Facebook group called Gangland Wire Crime Stories. I only admit podcast listeners. I have a public page, Twitter feed, and Instagram, all under Gangland Wire. Or you can email me at ganglandwire at gmail.com. As a lot of you know, I have a website, www.ganglandwire.com. On the shop page, you'll find a donate button to support the podcast. Now, I realize that some of you may be out of work because of this dang virus, and I don't want you to even think about donating. But for the rest of you guys, for $25 or more, I have different rewards depending on how much you give me. Plus, another way to support my work is to go to Amazon and rent my documentaries, Gangland Wire and Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Spiro War, or encourage your friends to do that.
I have a book about the Las Vegas casino skimming investigation titled Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Now that's a mouthful. I don't know what I was thinking when I titled that book. If you get the Kindle version, you'll get links to hear the actual wiretaps. Finally, don't forget you can buy me a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer with your Venmo app at Gangland Wire. You know, recently I've started hosting some Zoom calls that are restricted to fans who have supported the podcast in some manner. Besides cash donations, some of you are helping by becoming editors on my Facebook pages and keeping them filled with fresh content. And if anybody wants to write short blog pieces, no more than 100 or 150 words, and attach relevant photos, you can send those to me and I'll put those up on the Facebook. I have folks already like Ken C. from Arizona and Basil T. from Dallas helping with that. And they have both been doing a great job. I really appreciate what you guys have done. Every Facebook page can use more and more accurate content. People out there are starved for good, accurate content. Let me know if you're interested. Time for my public service announcement. Right now, Gangland Wire is supporting PTSD treatment and recovery for veterans. If you're a vet and you think you may need help with PTSD, call 1-800-273-8255 and press 1. Or you can text at 838-255. The VA also has a website with lots of resources at www.ptsd.va.gov. Well, as we used to say, I'm 1042. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.